Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's state legislation designed to make it easier to start community EMS programs. It took five years for that bill to become law in 2017. But more than two years later, even though this bill was passed, signed into law, it still hasn't actually happened. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We are investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, there's a tool that could keep you and the people you love out of the emergency room. So why aren't more communities using it? The safety issue wrapped in red tape. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. And Jenna Sachs. Hi. So today we're talking about a safety issue wrapped in red tape. Amanda, you've been researching a program that's designed to prevent emergencies instead of just responding to them. That's right. So the most common term for this is community EMS. It's making non-emergency visits now to prevent 911 calls later. To get a better idea of how this all works, we shadowed West Alice Community EMS visits and got permission to sit in on an appointment. Hello. How are you? Good. Good to see you. 118 over 64. That is almost picture perfect. So you're hearing firefighter Chris Williams. He checks in on patients like Jim Larson and his wife, Sandy. Jim has Parkinsonism, which causes similar problems as Parkinson's. Water on the brain, dementia, diabetes, the list of Jim's ailments really goes on. I can't remember hardly anything. That's got to be a little bit difficult to deal with. When Jim's symptoms first started progressing, he was falling a lot. So there were a lot of 911 calls. That's when West Alice started doing community EMS visits. It starts with a checkup and then goes to a home inspection to take a look at any potential fall hazards. They even connected Jim with a chairlift to help him get around. But the biggest part of the appointment was a conversation. And it sounds simple, but it's really finding out how to proactively help Jim and his family before an emergency pops up. Let's talk a little bit about nutrition. When was his last fall? Do you have an avenue where you can take care of yourself? It's comforting. You get a new set of eyes to look at the house, look at the setup, and maybe reconfigure how you've done things. So Jim's family seems happy with this program. Do we know if community EMS is working on a bigger scale? And that's the big question. So let's start with West Alice. The fire department says there's now less strain on the 911 system because they're catching problems before they become emergencies. Hospitals seem pretty happy, too. Federal data shows roughly 23% of heart failure patients end up back in the hospital within the next month. But that number dropped from 23% to just 8.1% for heart failure patients Aurora West Alice connected to community EMS. Hospitals need to keep those rates of readmitted patients low under the Affordable Care Act. Beyond West Alice, 
that's where things get interesting. Well, that's the thing, because so far I feel like, well, this is a nice feature on community EMS. What's the investigation here? There's an issue though, right? There is an issue. So there's state legislation designed to make it easier to start community EMS programs. That legislation outlines training, protocols, and approval process, because you can't just show up one day as a firefighter and say, hey, I'm community EMS now. You really need to follow a set of standards. What are those standards? That's what this legislation outlines. It took five years for that bill to become law in 2017. But more than two years later, even though this bill was passed, signed into law, it still hasn't actually happened. So you've already outlined a lot of benefits that people have seen with community EMS. I guess the question is why not? When we talk about a bill becoming a law, we tend to think it happens immediately, right? It's signed. We're going to see results. That's not actually what happens. Every law needs to go what's known as the rulemaking process before going into effect. So the law lays out the what, but the rules lay out the how. So that requires public comment, hearings, legislative review. For example, if Wisconsin ever were to make marijuana legal, there would need to be protocols that were changed that would go beyond the scope of the law. They would have to change some rules. It would take a while for that to happen. So with community EMS, that rulemaking process has been going on for more than two years. Until it's done, the jumpstart a lot of communities say they need before really kicking off this program stays wrapped in that red tape. So I, I feel like this is the part of the podcast we always get to where we've kind of gone through the setup and now we've got these bullet points of possible questions for us to discuss and we'll talk forever about them. But one that I don't see here that really stands out to me is, I, is you step back from all of this. If I don't call 911 a lot and my family doesn't call 911 a lot, why is this something I should care about? Why should I want community EMS? So the fire the the West Dallas captain of the this program they call it the mobile integrated health unit will say that there are several reasons for one tax dollars it affects your tax dollars if there's less strain on the 911 system he says there's less wear and tear on their vehicles because they're responding to a non-emergency visit with basically a, an understated van instead of the fire engine, the fire truck, the ambulance. Which is what they have to send, even if it's not necessarily a serious emergency, but it's a 911 Correct. Call. So there is a financial component of this, but there also is a, a factor of you never really know when you're going to need 911 services. Uh, one of the things, and when I when I was talking to the captain about this, it was he got a little somber um, because he said people aren't calling us when they win the lottery; they're calling us on often what's the worst day or worst moment, and you never know when that's going to be. I even look at the couple that we sat in on their appointment, Jim and Sandy Larson. They never expected that he would have this long list of ailments, but all of a sudden, essentially, his legs stopped working, and suddenly he's falling a lot. Sandy's still working full-time. She can't be home with him all the time, and it just kind of happened. That's not something you anticipate. But there's also a whole other set of services that community EMS could theoretically offer that apply to a lot more people. So for example, if you have just had a baby, the idea is that community EMS could show up at your door. It's usually six weeks until you go back to the doctor for an actual visit. Before then, 
Someone shows up, checks in whether you need anything, can help catch signs of postpartum depression, can help see if maybe there's a health complication that as a woman you thought, oh, this must be a normal part of post-pregnancy, but it's actually a serious health concern. Maybe they catch that. So the idea is maybe there are more things that we can be treating as we take a more patient-centric approach, um, even if you haven't been a habitual 911 caller. So you mentioned it's most often firefighters who are acting in this role as community EMS. I know from speaking with fire departments recently that they're dealing with tighter budgets these days because people are calling 911 more and more often for these emergency calls rather than firefighters responding to fires, they're more often responding to these medical mm -hmm. emergencies. And so their their budgets are a bit strained. I guess this begs the question, will this money come out of their budgets? Would that help them? Or, or where would this be funded? And, and, and that's, that's a great question, because that also depends on the individual community. Right now, community EMS is not funded through insurance, through Medicaid, you know, through kind of your traditional funding routes. West Dallas has contracts with hospitals because hospitals, it's cheaper for them to fund a community EMS visit than it is to have a patient readmitted to the hospital within that next so month. So it's an investment for them. Exactly. So hospitals say, hey, we'd rather pay less now instead of risking paying more later. So West Dallas says that helps offset their cost, and they say that the preventative care then helps offset the cost of later emergency calls. That said, depending on what's going on, because you can never anticipate how a, a week, a month, a year is going, how many calls you're going to get, there are times they operate at a loss and they're trying to figure out how do we work this into our budget. So for some communities, it might mean do we need to expand our budget? Other communities might be able to say we have enough people where we can work within our budget and just reallocate a few resources. It's so different from community to community, and that's why the state legislation outlining the protocols and the best practices would really be helpful for places that don't know exactly where to start. It, we've all spent time hanging out in firehouses for stories for various reasons, and one thing you'll hear Anytime you sit around and talk to firefighters, especially when there's downtime, is they'll talk about the frequent flyers, the people whose houses they go to over and over again. And they'll uh, – almost to a firefighter, you'll get the story of the person waiting at the curb with the packed suitcase to go to their appointment because this wasn't a real emergency, but it's their only way to get to the hospital. And an ambulance ride is an awfully expensive taxi ride. Um, so I, is that one of the things this is aimed at is reducing those really expensive taxi rides to the hospital? That is one of the benefits, especially when you look at more rural parts of the state. So we have a map that shows where all the hospitals are in Wisconsin, and you have some counties that don't have easy access to an ER. And so if someone has limited transportation, what are they going to do? The vision for what community EMS could be is that they help make those connections or someone comes directly to your home rather than you needing that ride to the hospital. Um, or, you know, you're more likely to encourage a patient to have that follow-up care. Again, that's the vision. Whether that can be a reality throughout the state is a big question mark because we only have a, a handful of communities that we know about that are doing this. And places like West Dallas say they're seeing success internally, but it also means that what they're doing for their model, for their community is working. 
what's going to work for the municipality next door may not be the exact same. So how do, you, how do you train for this? Does it play into what firefighters already have in their wealth of knowledge? Would this just be a little supplemental training or would it be a big program? There's a UW Milwaukee offers a community EMS training program because it is a different skill set. You are being proactive rather than reactive. You're almost combining social work into emergency response. So you need to know what kinds of questions to ask. You need to know it's kind of the more subjective stuff that you're feeling for. You know, okay, could this person be struggling with addiction? What are some signs? How do I bring up that conversation? Part of what uh, some community EMS programs do is helping homeless people. You don't just walk up to someone and go, hey, are you homeless? You know, there's a whole protocol for that. So UW-Milwaukee does offer specific training for this. But what the legislation is supposed to lay out is, hey, here are the points you really should be meeting because right now this kind of grew organically. So Chris Williams went through the UW-Milwaukee training and he said it was very eye-opening and it was um, a skill set that his supervisors felt he already kind of naturally had, but he says it would not have been developed in the way it was had he not gone through that training. I know in watching your story, and I know Jenna and I both know, we all know that you struggled to get someone who would let you into their home to go on camera and sort of see how this process works. Mm-hmm. You worked you know, daily trying to get this trying to find someone to profile. And and it's not easy because these are people who have obviously a lot of their own personal issues and maybe they don't want that aired out for the whole world. It's very personal. Um, so it's very, very personal. Um, but the couple you did get, it, it was great to sort of see how this works and, and, and see uh, the firefighter in their home asking these questions. What I wonder though is, does the fire department or in West Dallas Fire Department, whoever provides the service, do they identify the people who need these services or do people request it? Do they say, hey, I want some community EMS. How do I get that? It's a variety. So sometimes the hospital will refer a patient. So if you are checking out of Aurora West Alice and you've had a heart issue, they might say, this person could use a community EMS follow-up. They have a relationship with West Dallas Fire Department, so they'll help arrange for that. That's one way. Some of it is through 911 calls. So, for example, in the case of Jim Larson, he was falling a lot. Finally, emergency responders on the scene responding to that emergency call said, okay, this is someone who we can flag as would be a good candidate for community EMS services for that non-emergency So it's visit. really the responders who are identifying a pattern and saying this is someone yes, who may need Yes, but you can also kind of call them directly and say, hey, you know, I can't my, – my parents are being really stubborn. They want to continue to be in their home, but I know there are fall hazards everywhere. Um, it might be a little more palatable for them to have someone go to their home instead of having to make a, a formalized doctor trip. Uh, is this something we can connect on? And in West Dallas, patients, you don't get a bill for their services. So they're showing up. And the idea and what this legislation really lays out is you are operating under the supervision of a physician in certain cases. So, for example, if they were to use EMS to help someone who is struggling with opioid addiction and you want to help connect that person with medication and counseling and other treatment, you're not just doing that as a layperson, right? There is a physician who is 
overseeing uh, some of those recommendations that you are making. So it's all tied in together. But there are a variety of ways that people can get these services, at least in West Dallas, where they're already doing this. So from all your research, what do you think is the biggest hurdle to this legislation actually going through? A lot of things come down to money. So I think in terms of this legislation becoming reality, because it's already gone through, right? So now it's what's it going to take to see these programs? Part of it is money in terms of figuring out funding sources. If you haven't already started a program, it sounds nice to hear, oh, you'll save money down the road. But there's always a startup cost. There's the upfront investment. Uh, Sometimes it's a change in mindset. We are so, and West Dallas, every firefighter there will be the first to tell you this is the future of EMS. This is what we need to do as we switch our focus to not only the physical symptoms someone has, but their overall mental health. As we reevaluate how we treat addiction, how we treat uh, maternity care, how we treat pregnancy, all these other all these other health issues that we're having more open conversations about. And so if you're used to reacting instead of going out there before the emergency, that's a really tough mental switch to make. I wonder, is it going to take data? I mean, is it going, for instance, West Dallas now is is doing this in practice. So will they be able to at one point put out a report that says, here's what our top EMS users or 911 call users were doing and costing before the program, here's what it is now, and that's you know much more than that fraction of the cost it was to start up the program. That, I would think, would be the kind of thing that might get other communities to go, okay, we can see concrete examples of how we could save money. Otherwise, you are saying, hey, throw me some money up front, and down the road, there's going to be some unknown savings. It's tough to sell that in a community that's got a tight budget. Absolutely. And Wisconsin EMS Association, who we talked to about this, they're big proponents of community EMS. They said that data is going to be a huge part in clearing this hurdle. And they're looking at a few other states. Pennsylvania is one of them that do different versions of for example, with addiction treatment, what we call a warm handoff, where you have emergency responders in a position to do more of those social services where you're connecting patients to treatment. And so they want to see how that data comes in and affects everything. But the the first step, it may not be the biggest step, but the first step is for this legislation to finish going through the rulemaking process. And I do want to be clear, this isn't unusual. There's, it's not that this is a specific bill that for whatever reason is taking four times as long as every other bill. Wisconsin is slow when it comes to figuring out how to enact legislation, and we've seen it time and time again. And that's in part because they're trying to be thorough because there are a lot of hands that need to be involved in it. Um, but, you know, there are emergency responders who say they they could be doing this a little bit what, faster. What, do you think it would be going more quickly, though, if there were more communities chomping at the bit to go, we want to start one, we want to start one? If there's not so much demand, do they go, well, there's other priorities right now? It could be. I, anything, whenever you're talking about anything with bureaucracy, you know, we can spend all day speculating about why it's moving the way it's moving. I don't know that we'll ever have any concrete answer, but certainly that's that's a theory. I think it's the idea that we need to dot every I and cross every T When in reality with programs like this, you never really know exactly what you're going to get until you take that risk and start it. And for a community like West Dallas, they said, you know what, it's worth that risk. We're going to see how it goes. And they feel like it's paying off. 
for a different community, that risk might be a harder hurdle to clear. Well, Amanda, I know you're a very thorough reporter, so if there's a (laughs) follow-up to be had here, I'm sure you'll be the first to have it. Absolutely. You know, when this first kind of came across my desk, it didn't look like an investigation in, in the same way we typically think of investigative reporting. You know, there's no mustache twirling villain. There's no, um, you know, deep, dark secret that someone's trying to prevent us from uncovering. But it's an issue that really can't be told in the minute and a half that you usually get with your day of news because you need to see how it works and see how it affects you. And I'm coming to find that a lot of health issues are like that. So I'm sure there will be a lot of follow-ups and I'm hoping that in a few months we'll be able to talk more about how this is all unfolding. And that would be the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. This is a segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or whenever we're out and about. Here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There's several envelopes in front of us, and I'm going to pick one at random. It is my turn. Do you think any of our, our faithful podcast listeners just recite that in their own heads as they hear us say they it? Like, they know what they're about to say. Uh, faithful listeners. Listen, I did say listeners. Did yeah. I not? Yes, there yeah, are faithful that's my listeners. Question. Yes. yes, there are faithful listeners. I'm sure there are. Oh, this is an interesting one. Have you ever done an interview and found yourself terribly underprepared? Oh, I can tell you that when I was pregnant with the twins, um, I had a lot of brain fog. And I remember doing an interview that I had driven to Madison for with like a, a state official. And in the middle of it, I became so foggy that I kind of forgot what the interview was about. And I had to ask some <laughs> questions like, can you tell me more about that? <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you think is important about this issue? Because I just so you just I, went I into therapy mode. You were suddenly like a, a professional counselor. Just, just tell me more. I couldn't believe that I was sitting there wondering what am I supposed to be talking about right now. But I was in just such a fog that day. It's a real pre- thing. It's a scientific brain. thing that happened to you. So that's what immediately comes to mind. Luckily, it was like someone I see often and I have a good relationship with. So. They didn't say anything about it, and I don't even know if they noticed, but halfway through that interview, I didn't remember what I was talking about. So I don't get that excuse, do I? You pregnant? The, 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 pregnant, the no. twins fog? No. no. I've never, I've the never, twins fog. I've never actually had like, like, you know, I forgot what I was doing, what I was there for, but certainly what, what happens, I think, more often than I would like, I don't like to have prepared lists of questions mm-hmm. because I find that it makes interviews too scripted and then Stale. you're not paying attention to what the answer is because you're looking at your next question. So I like to prepare the materials. I like to read through them on the way to an interview. I like to have bullet points to reference. Um, But a lot of times, more often than not, I will sit down with nothing in my hands and conduct an interview because I find it's more of a conversation. The downside to that is every so often you just blank on where you were going. Mm -hmm. Or there's the one big question that I should have asked and I go down another trail and then I leave and I go, I never asked that. So that does happen. But, you know, it's it's that usually happens more because of a lack of uh, thorough preparation, because if you've prepared well, you're going to know the key points you've got to hit. But when you sort of fly by the seat of your pants without notes, yeah, there are times that I have just completely lost my train of thought. And then I leave and go, why didn't I ask the most important question of all? My least favorite part of this job is having to 
listen to interviews I've done with people. Because you hear yourself. I hear myself. I hear the way I phrase that question. I hate how my voice sounds. I hate how my face looks. Just everything about re-watching interview. That is the most painful part of this job for me. I was going to say we all feel the same way, but I mean about ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, we all hate watching Amanda's interviews too. Um, Because I think when you're playing it back and you're watching it more as a viewer, you're going, oh, well, that should have been asked. Or why did you phrase it that way? Or geez, Amanda, you're taking three minutes to ask a question that should take 10 seconds. But I, I don't know that there's one in particular where I felt underprepared. My problem is I go into the weeds a lot. So especially I do want those interviews to seem more conversational, but that can sometimes mean taking tangents and getting back on track can be a real struggle. So I'll get so far into my head about, you know, what exactly it is that we want to get here that an obvious follow-up question will escape me. So I've had to learn to strike a better balance of not over-preparing, but still knowing my material well enough to have a productive interview. And sometimes as you're going back and you're kind of writing your story as you go, or you're logging your interviews as you go, because we'll take weeks or months to do a story, I'll interview two or three more people. And suddenly I have a whole new list of questions I want to ask that first person I interviewed. So that tends to happen a lot when we have time to actually work on these stories. Right. And I think about the day of reporters who are often going to press conferences or they're breaking news and they're running around and trying to do interviews. And sometimes you don't know all the information before you go and start asking the questions. And then you get into a situation where you think, oh, I didn't ask that. But sometimes we'll go to say like a press conference with with the police chief and we're getting brand new information about something. And you want to make sure you're asking the right questions, but you're also trying to keep up with everything they're saying and not ask the same questions all the other reporters in the huddle are asking. Um, So back at the station later, someone will be shouting at you, why didn't they ask this? Uh, But you can't do anything about that kind of situation. You're just trying to get the information accurately and quickly in those situations. So so there's a ton of different scenarios we can be in. And one thing I've tried to steer away from doing. And definitely I look back earlier in my career and see so many times where I did it, where you're, you're almost trying to impress the person you're interviewing with how much you know and how prepared you are. I did that a lot, especially early on, because yeah, you want to prove that you are, you know, don't underestimate me just because I'm on television. Exactly. Or just because I'm young or just because, you know, whatever, whatever the reason is. And some of the best sound I get is, sometimes when I play dumb. I've had cases where, especially when you're dealing with someone who isn't speaking the way normal people speak, if you're talking to someone who's using a lot of police lingo or giving you very short answers, I've had times where I will purposefully repeat something back wrong and you kind of see the eye roll and it's like, let me dumb this down for you. And they say the best sound bite that sums everything up. Sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes it's not. It's kind of an in-the-moment thing. But when you're spending a lot of time trying to impress your interviewee with how prepared you are, you lose the opportunity to even make that choice. I know no one would be surprised by this. I'm, I'm notorious here for doing long interviews. No. You know, they'll run 30, 35, 40 minutes sometimes, and that seems insane. And on a day of turn, you can't do that. You've no. got deadlines. You've got to get a few questions out and interview. go. But when you have prepared for a big interview for, you know, days even, maybe weeks, 
and you've got the time. A lot of times I find an interview to be, there's, there's an ebb and flow to the conversation and you want to connect with the person so that they'll open themselves up. And sometimes a lot of that connection is the buildup to the questions you want to ask. If you jump right in and start asking, well, what was it like to lose your son? You're not going to get the same effect as if you've connected with that person. I talk a lot about myself. I talk about my kids. I talk about my own personal life in ways that I wouldn't want to necessarily broadcast or be a part of the story, but it's a way of connecting on a human level with the person you're talking to. And then as they loosen up, they start to talk about themselves and then it's time. So there's, there can be a buildup to the, to those questions, but in doing that kind of back to the original point of it, sometimes in doing that sort of personal connection, you do go down paths and you, you, you think, where was I going with this? I need mm-hmm. to get back to where I was. And there've been times I've, I've listened back to the interview and thought, Brian, get to the point, man, yep. just get there. And I will say, when I look at the word underprepared, I would say sometimes I was unprepared for the scenarios I was walking into. Mm. Like there might be a public official who's got a really tight PR woman who accompanies him and yells at you if you ask a tough question. You know, it's good to know in advance if that person might behave that way. Or you might go to a house for an interview and find out it's a hoarder situation. So I think you you rock into these situations all the time and you think, okay, well, now we're here and this is how it's going to be and or we're going to hap- roll with it. This happened recently where we were invited in to interview a woman. I got a phone call from a woman who wanted to be interviewed. She wanted to have, have her say after a promo started running – showing that she had been stealing money from an elderly woman when she was working as a caregiver. So it was a caregiver fraud story. Well, she called and said she wanted to do an on-camera interview. And we showed up and we're standing in the living room. And it turned out she wasn't the one who called. It was someone else who called posing as her. And we're standing there and the person who was supposedly there to do the interview with us didn't want us in the house. And it was a really – talk about being unprepared. That was a really uncomfortable situation. But so, you yeah, got the interview. We did. end up. Oh, it, 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 we ended up getting the interview after all, but it was a really unusual situation. There was yelling in the back room among the people, the one who called us and the one who was supposed to be doing the interview. It was uh, – as we're standing in a living room going, do we do we stay? Do we go? <laughs> right. It's awkward. Are we prepared if we have to run? I don't know what's going to yeah. happen here. But yeah, it was uh, – I, I guess that's a, another way of being – unprepared for what's about to happen. Do you have a question you want the Open Record team to answer? Let us know. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thanks for listening to Open Record. We'd also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. If you enjoy listening, please let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more open record, just head to our website, fox6now.com.